Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. I first met this week's guest in Nottingham when we featured Line of Duty star Vicky McClure and her incredible dementia choir on the podcast. Mark Delissa is their musical director and conductor and you may have seen him on the BBC documentary series Our Dementia Choir, but it's highly likely you've enjoyed some of Mark's brilliant musicianship without even realising. He was choir director for the King's Coronation Concert at Windsor Castle and the Queen's spectacular Platinum Jubilee concert outside Buckingham Palace, working with an eclectic group of artists from Andrea Bocelli, Hans Zimmer and Lionel Richie to Katy Perry, George Ezra and Mabel. And his vocal arrangement of Stand By Me for Prince Harry's wedding has been enjoyed more than 23 million times on YouTube. No, I won't be afraid. No, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. He's one of the most sought-after vocal coaches and arrangers in the music business and works on some of the UK's most watched TV shows like Songs of Praise, The Voice UK and The Masked Singer. And Mark loves to get the nation singing, embracing the power of music, whether that be virtually, somewhere grand like the Royal Festival Hall, or in remote rural communities. Today I'm at Mark's studio for an eagerly anticipated chat about his life in music. Mark, it really is great to see you again. and. You really are immersed in music and getting the world singing. I'm guessing this is your life's passion, isn't it? Oh, my God. It is literally the only thing that I could ever want to do in this life, truly. I think one of the things, as you were talking there about getting the nation to sing, it is always a joy for me just to see people come alive when you know they believe they can't sing and they're in a choir with me or doing some kind of workshop and they come alive and so for me i'm talking about more and more these days is purpose and this is absolutely 100 my purpose here and that's all i want to do for the rest of my life and is this all you've wanted to do since you were little yeah it is i mean the story is a long and, and difficult one really because this is something that i did every week at church since really young, I think my first memory of choir directing and, and singing came when my dad was told by my mother that he must take one of his children to his choir rehearsal. He went to choir rehearsal every single Friday. Since I was born, he was there every Friday without fail. And my mum said one week, you know, at least take one. I was young, the, young, the youngest of four and he took me along. And I remember for the first time, I sat there thinking, firstly, I don't want to be here because there's a whole group of old men. I mean, my dad was probably early 40s at the time. <laughs> but there's this whole group of old men singing old songs and I just didn't want to be there. And I thought I was going to be incredibly bored. And for the first 10 seconds, I was like, you know, I, I'm going to die. I just want to roll underneath this pew and die. And then the choral director got up and just kind of got the guys into position and said, okay, we're going to run through this song. And they started singing and he started waving his arms around. And the sound that he got out of these old men at the time was unbelievable. And I remember just as a seven-year-old just going, 
this is incredible. I would love to do this. And literally, I think after that, I say to my dad, you know, can I come with you? He didn't actually allow me to go many more times after that. Did he not? No, I, I went I went a few times, but then he was just like, you know, he's Mark's taking up space. But I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed being in that rehearsal. And was that all gospel stuff they were singing at the time? It was a male voice choir, right? So it's all kind of old Welsh hymns and stuff, which is what they were doing. So the sort of stuff that puts the hairs on the back of your arms off, I'm guessing. Absolutely. I bet it was an amazing sound. It was unreal. And, you know, Eve, I, can, I, I have a fond love for male voice music now. You know, whenever I hear a good male voice choir, I'm like, man, this is this is amazing, you know, and it's all stems from there. And, you know, for years, I didn't know that that was the beginnings. I didn't know until probably only maybe about six or seven years ago. And it really started to come back to me because people start, start to ask the question, well, how did you get into this? And I was just like, oh, you know, yeah, I sang in church and blah, blah, blah. But it was then. It was that moment at seven years old with my dad. And so he is to blame for this. <laughs> <laughs> and what did your parents think when, you know, I'm guessing your parents are probably similar generation to mine, when you then decide that music's going to be your career? I suppose I'm imagining in my head what my parents might have said, well, you know, you need to get a proper job. Mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. Was that like that for you? Oh, absolutely. They were like, no, 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 this is, music is not, not a thing to make money from. Because they didn't see anyone like me, a black boy growing up making money, other than, you know, the Marvin Gaye's and, you know, the Teddy Pendergrass. They didn't see that it was viable and that it was possible to actually make a career from it. So they were like, no, you must go and get a proper job. And so I grew up in the time where information technology and computers were on the rise. And so my dad, you know, in his wisdom, bought me many a computer and was like, hey, you must, you must do this. They still encouraged me to play the piano and stuff, which I absolutely hated. Did you? After about, you know, session four, you know, the teacher wasn't very good. I can look back now and say that. He wasn't very good and he didn't really encourage me nicely. But it was like, well, you're not doing very good. You're a bit rubbish and you need to practice. I mean, that's just not the way to encourage a nine, 10 year old. So I gave that up pretty quickly. But my parents were very much like, you've got to go and get a job in computers or and be an accountant or a doctor or a engineer, sensible a, sensible a sensible job, job. to which I was like, okay, cool. And you kind of go through the motions really of doing that. And I did, and I studied computer science, which I absolutely hated. And I went through what I call the years of failure. And they were failure because I was trying to do what my parents wanted me to do, which was, you know, be a computer scientist. And so I did a year in electronic systems engineering, the first lecture I absolutely hated, and all the way through to the end of the year. And I failed the year because it just wasn't in it. I just didn't want to be anywhere near electronic systems or computers or engineering. I didn't want it. And then I thought, okay, cool. And all of this was driven by me not wanting to let my parents down. That was the key thing. That was in Essex University in Colchester. And then I thought, okay, let me go back to my parents' home and try to do this thing again. Because in my head, I was away from home. Maybe that's what it was, but that's why it wasn't working. When really all I knew is that I didn't want to do it. So I went back home and I started another degree in computer science in London, staying at home with my parents, getting my clothes washed, no distractions, got to the end of the year and failed. <sighs> No. And I remember my parents, they were brilliant in that they didn't say anything, but it was also heartbreaking that they didn't say anything. You almost wanted them to shout at you, you know, so you get to the end of that year and they don't say anything. They just go, oh, okay, so 
what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. You know, in tears. No idea what I'm going to do. And then, I don't know how this happened, but I was searching through the UCAS book and I found this degree, which was computer science and music. Ah. And I was like, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to please my mum and dad. They're going to be happy with me. And I can please myself. Interestingly, this was back in Colchester at Essex University. So I started <laughs> I started the, this another first year of another degree. And the computer science was absolutely terrible. But I knew it was going to be. But I wanted the music to kind of lift me to a place where actually the computer science is more bearable. So I started doing the music and I loved it. I mean, literally, I could have been in there every day. I was playing piano all day. I was singing with people. I started a band. It was just like, this is what I want. I won a competition. I mean, it was like... The best year ever. Anyway, it got to the end of the year. And as you, as I'm sure everybody knows, you with a degree like that, you have to pass both elements. So I passed the music and sadly I failed. Oh no, Mark. <laughs> so what did so, you do? Well, for me, that felt like the end of the road because there was nothing more. That's back then it was three strikes and you're out. So that summer... I went back home and I was doing a, a summer job, which was driving elderly people from home to hospital. And I didn't really know what to do. It was kind of three strikes and out. I had no more funding. I couldn't apply for another degree without having to pay for it. I thought, what do I do? Do I stay here in London back with my parents or do I go back to Colchester? And I remember driving down the road. Now I'm quite a spiritual guy, right? And I was driving this little ambulance. It wasn't an ambulance. It was just a car that we pick people up in. And I said to God, look, I'm at the end here. I don't know what to do. Do I try something else? Do I just start working? What do I do? And I said, I need you to tell me, I need the answer to this question, stay in London or go back to Colchester. And I need you to answer me. And I don't want a wishy-washy sign. Like if the sky is slightly bluer on that side than it is on that side, I say, yes, go back to Colchester. I don't want that. I want a rock solid. This is what you need to do. I need you to tell me before 10 p.m. tonight. <laughs> you were quite firm. I was. With God. I, I was because I was I was so frustrated. This is life. This is my life I'm talking about here. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So anyway, got home and I'm sitting down talking to my parents and the home phone starts ringing. I had a mobile phone. Not sure why the home phone starts ringing. Anyway, home phone starts ringing. My mum picks it up and she says, Mark, it's for you. And I said, oh, okay, who's that? And it was a friend that I had met in Colchester that year. He was doing computer science with me when I was doing music and computer science. And he said to me, Mark, I don't know why I'm calling to tell you this, but I have just had this real urge to tell you to come back to Colchester. And I was like, you what? And I said, where does that come from? He goes, I have no idea. I hadn't spoken to him for about three months. So he said, this massive urge to tell you, you need to be back in Colchester. And I was like, oh my goodness. Now my parents have this massive kind of what we used to call Big Ben, this massive grandfather clock hanging. It was kind of not really grandfather. It's kind of a, a small grandfather hanging on the wall. I looked up at the clock and it was 10 minutes to 10. In that moment, I was like, this is blowing my mind here. I didn't say anything to my friend who was on the phone. I just put the phone down and I was just in tears because I was just like, I asked for this. And so therefore this is what I'm going to do. So next couple of weeks, I packed up my stuff and I went back to Colchester with no plan. Absolutely zero plan. Just going back to Colchester to sit in a house and try to work out what I was going to do with my life. That's an extraordinary story. And once you got back to Colchester and you're sitting there working out what to do, how did the pieces form? 
which have led you to then having had the extraordinary career that you've had so far. What was the tipping point in a way? Going back to Costa was absolutely the right thing. Um, I had no money. I was flat broke. I was renting a house that I had no money to pay for. And for the three years after getting back to Colchester, somehow I stumbled into a job that was paying me more than I could spend in IT. (laughs) And I thought to myself at that time, I was like, how have I come all the way through this thing of trying to please my parents doing IT to then come back to Colchester thinking this is the thing to then be back in IT again. But it was a means to an end. And I remember getting there on the first day and just thinking, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm in this place, but it was what they called the Millennium Project. This is 1997. And we had to look at software and what was going to happen when it clicked over from December 31st, 99 to January 1st, 2000. Um, So anyway, I did all of that. We worked on that project. Absolutely. I don't know whether or not I even did, even made a bit of difference in what I was doing, but I did it anyway and earned some really good money and found myself just having all of this stuff that I needed. So a home, a car and all the rest of that. And then... Cutting a long story short, I decided that I was coming to the end. I needed to get out of this. Three years is way too long. Three days was long enough. So I had to get out. This is six months before I ended that job. Again, really spiritual. I said, okay, this is what I want. I want God in whichever, whoever you are, wherever you are, I want you to tell me what I need to do. So I went online and Amazon had just started and they were only selling books. And I went on and I said, okay, cool. Music, singing, voices is my thing. This is my passion. This is my life. This is what I want to do. So I start looking through some books and I find this book and I say, okay, cool. I'm going to order it. So I ordered it. Five weeks later, it doesn't turn up. So I'm like, I mean, you know, Amazon now, it's like it's going to turn up in 60 seconds, right? So I was like, okay, cool. This book hasn't turned up. So I went back online and I ordered it again. Now, a week passed and it hadn't turned up, but I went into work one morning and in the office were people wearing suits. And we generally didn't wear suits. It was always dress down day for us. And so anyway, they called us in and they called us around at this desk and they said, listen, this is what's happening. We are closing down this department. So you can either apply for your job again in London or you can take voluntary redundancy. So I was like, oh my goodness, this is the best thing ever. So anyway, so my boss said, okay, listen, take the morning off, go and have a think about it and see what happens. I went home and on the mat was the book. It had been delivered that morning. And I remember just sitting there just going, well, there's my answer. This is what I'm supposed to do. So I went back to the office and said, right guys, take care. See you later. And my last day, and I love this, my last day of work in IT was on the 31st of December. 1999. 1999. And what was that book? What direction did that book open? It was all about vocal coaching, vocal teaching, the voice, anatomy, and all of the good stuff that that I do now. And I read that book from cover to cover. And then obviously in that moment, because I had then come out of this work, I was unemployed again. So I said, okay, well, not sure what I'm going to do. So I took the year out, had enough money to kind of live throughout that year. And you're like this. I remember I have no first degree at this stage. So I apply for a master's degree. And the first prerequisite at the top of the page is you must have an undergraduate degree. So I was like, I'm going to apply anyway. So I apply. 
but then I called the following day just to say, look, is this going to be even possible? And the gentleman said to me, doesn't look likely, but if you've applied already, let's see what happens. Anyway, fast forward about six months and it was October of that year. And I thought, okay, it's October. So university courses have started. So I haven't gone to this course. So anyway, I get a call and they say, oh, we would like to invite you to come in for an interview. So I said, okay, so I go for the interview. And they said, we'll get back to you within a week. So I'm like, okay, cool. So they come back to me and the letter starts by saying, unfortunately. And I'm like, oh no. So anyway, I put the letter down. I go back to it in a couple of days and I read it through. So I didn't, you know, you don't continue reading. It's just like, okay, it's got to say, unfortunately, you're not successful, blah, blah, blah. Went back, I read down and it said, however, if somebody pulls out or doesn't make the course, then you're in. A week later, they've called me and they're like, we'd like you to start. And I'm like, what? So I start this course in voice studies at the Central School of Speech and Drama. I truly can't put into words how life-changing that was. Doing something that you've wanted to do all your life, something that you have run from because you wanted to do the thing that your parents wanted you to do, and then to be actually doing it. I mean, there's so much to this story that I don't think we've even got time for. How did I pay for it? I had no money. That's another story. How did I get through to the end and pass it and then go on to do all of the stuff that I've done is like a whole another story. Which that sounds you know, like it's a whole other podcast how you actually managed to do it but when you talk about all that early struggle and failure all mm -hmm. of which I'm sure being a spiritual person you'll probably tell me made you stronger yeah. you then look back to the introduction I've just read and that's only just a small part that I fitted into the introduction of all the extraordinary things you've done and I think it's really inspiring Mark because to look at you now with all the things you do you're at the top of your tree, you're in demand all the way around the world for your talent, yet it's somehow comforting that it wasn't just handed to you on a plate. No. You've gone through no. some struggle and has that made you stronger that you've had to really work to get what you want in life? Most definitely. Looking back, it was heartbreaking. You know, I remember sitting with my sister, my elder sister, just weeping because I'd failed and weeping because for all of my childhood, all we were trying to do is please our parents. We just wanted our parents to be proud or to smile and say, wow, you're, you're doing great. And West Indian parents, my West Indian parents, just didn't give that. And so therefore you never knew that you were doing anything good or pleasing or to make them proud. And so it was hard going through that. And even now still, there's always built up in me that am I, am I doing all right? You know, if you ask people closest to me, they'll tell you, I'm always like, was that okay? I came off the stage or came out of the church, you know, having sung and arranged Stand By Me for Harry and Meghan. And I didn't turn my phone on because I thought it was terrible. I went from Harry and Meghan's wedding straight to the airport to get on a plane, to go to Ireland, to do a workshop with a choir there. And I didn't turn on my phone until I got to Ireland. So for four hours, I'm just like, no, no, I'm not going to do that because I know what happened in that moment wasn't great, or I felt it wasn't great. Does that make sense? But the rest of the world loved what you did in that moment. Absolutely. Stand by me, so darling, darling, stand by me, stand by me.
still within me. The struggle is that anything that comes from me isn't very good. Oh no! And and may I ask, have you still got mum and dad? And mum and dad? I've got dad. Dad. Mum passed. And did mum in her lifetime recognise that you had succeeded, or did she see some of the achievements that she felt proud of? And does dad ever say anything that validates what you're doing, or does yeah, that not happen in a West Indian family? Goodness, Helen, you are asking some questions there. My mum, bless her, never did. I think in her own way, she wanted me always to strive for better, and therefore wasn't able to say the words that I'm proud of you. You've done amazing. You know, she was never able to do that. My dad, on the other hand, although he <laughs> he struggles to put it into words, but he's always like blown away by stuff. He came to see a show that I did some years ago. And we had 700 people on stage and there were a thousand people in the audience. He was in the audience and it was a choir that I was conducting and I put together and stuff. And he was like, how have all these people got here? I said, what do you mean? They came on training. He goes, no, no, no. Who were they here for? And who brought them together? I said, well, no, I brought them together. Dad, I, you know, I work with some of them and, you know, we brought them together and we asked them to come and sing. And, and he couldn't believe that those people were there because of me. And that I had created all of that music for them to sing. He still can't get that. I mean, he said to me at the time, can you get me pictures? Because I need to remember this. And so he is super proud. And for me, that's validation 100%. But my mum, sadly, although I knew it and I know it because she told other people. And I don't know if this is the same in other cultures, man, but she just wasn't able to say it to me. Yeah, gosh, it's interesting, isn't it? And I'm sure she did feel a great amount of pride, but I think some people, and maybe it is the culture that she came from, found it difficult to say, or maybe growing up in a world with amazing gospel singing and church, maybe mm. that's music's something you do at church and doesn't, she didn't perhaps see that it could be this incredible career for you, an amazing journey. Yeah, it was definitely that. Definitely yeah. that. Church was, you know, we talk about this all the time that when we were going to church, church was all encompassing because you might be there on a Wednesday night for a, a meeting and, and there's a Friday night rehearsal and then Saturday, because I was a Seventh-day Adventist um, upbringing, so we worshipped on a Saturday. So you'd be there from nine in the morning till nine at night. There will be some singing that's going to happen throughout that time. Sunday, there might be another rehearsal. You know, so there was music all the time, but it was seen as worship. Yes. It wasn't seen as something that you could go out and make a career from. You know, my parents just didn't see that. Do you think now that your dad's got something more tangible to see? So I'm thinking King's Coronation. I'm sure he could either switch the television on like millions of us did, or I don't know whether he was perhaps there. But you could see, you could hear the choir that you put together for the King's Coronation concert at Windsor Castle behind every artist. Mm -hmm. Does that make it easier, do you think, for him to get what you do? Because it's his kid that's put that choir together. <laughs> and quite a task as well, I would imagine, with such a group of eclectic singers. That's your USP in a way, isn't it? Putting together these choirs that can cope with different voices, whoever yeah. that may be, whether it's a pop star or a classical singer. Yeah, he does see it. There has been times where he'll call me and say, oh, I, I saw you on television today, be it hosting Songs of Praise or Our Dementia Choir or, or whatever it might be. But he does see it now. He, he does very much get it. But it is difficult for them to understand exactly what I've done. That is quite difficult. And so, you know, I was I was in um, at Jamaica recently and all of my 
mother's family are there. <laughs> and then further away from me, I mean, as they see what I do on, in, on Instagram and socials and stuff, but they're further away. So they all ask the same question. So what, what exactly, how, what do you, what, what, what do you do? What did you do for the coronation concert? And I have to kind of explain, okay, so Lionel Richie says he's going to use the choir. So he sends some songs and I have to create the arrangement for the choir so that they sing along with him. And it's something that he likes. So then there's that bounce backwards and forwards. Okay, this is what I've got the choir doing. This is what I've arranged. This is what it's going to sound like. You send it to Mr. Ritchie. Mr. Ritchie says, this is perfect. Or no, this is not perfect. Jimmy, can we change this? And that's the back and forth that happens. And so you do that with every single artist until everybody's happy. Just give me a few names that you're doing that for at the King's Coronation concert. So Lionel, we did Katy Perry. We did a little bit of Take That. Steve Winwood, I did a whole arrangement on that one. Alexis French, also there as well. Andrea Bocelli, Bryn Terfel. There were loads. What are the challenges, Mark, of doing things like that? What are the trickiest bits or the most exciting bits? What a task to be liaising with artists like that. The exciting bit is just when you start creating. For example, Alexis French, and I love that arrangement of Don't You Forget About Me. You stand get his piano part first. That's what we get. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then we get what the soloist is going to sing. And then I create this kind of soundscape of what the choir will do, you know, and I send that back. So that the exciting part is creating that first. The struggle is sending it off and seeing what comes back. One of the biggest examples I can give of that was Harry and Meghan's song stand by me where there were 13 different versions because the backwards and forwards was like okay version one wasn't great they didn't like it version two they didn't like version three you know and it goes all the way through until you get to version 13 that almost broke me but that's another podcast for another day but yeah so the exciting part is starting the creation and then the push and the pull that happens i have to as an arranger be strong to say this is going to work you may not hear it as a choir right now because it might just be three solo voices or, you know, three voices singing in harmony. But as a choir, this is going to lift, you know, so it's like that's the exciting part of it. And is there any big rehearsal, Mark? Because the event, when you tune in on TV like I did to both the King's Coronation and the Queen's Platinum Jubilee concert, it's such a slick operation. Everything from the yeah. music to the artists getting on and off stage to the light show. But I'm guessing something of that scale and in those locations can't be heavily rehearsed no. purely because you can't get all the artists because they're such a high calibre. So how do you know on the night it's going to work? And is there any kind of rehearsal? There is a very, very, very limited rehearsals. So for me, the beauty of my choirs is that, or the choirs that I put together, is that they have to all have the same mindset. So they know that we will probably be on stage. I think with Lionel, we were on stage rehearsing for twice through of his songs. And that's it. And it's not then, much, is it? No. He's heard us live in that moment. And then it's the performance.
so there's very limited rehearsal. But if the singers know what they're doing and they are absolutely rock solid and they are just aware that anything can change in any moment, then we can make anything work. And that's part of the excitement for me as well. Because, you know, you've got 30 singers, you have to absolutely get them to where they need to be and singing exactly what they need to sing at the right time. And did you get any nice feedback from any of the acts you worked with, both at the King's Coronation Concert and the Queen's? Everyone sends a little note just to say thank you for what we did and, you know, the choir were amazing and that kind of thing. And we always get that kind of stuff. It's just because it's super well rehearsed. From our point of view, I get to rehearse my choir as much as I need before we actually get them on the day. So you kind of know that it's going to be fine. What were your favourite pieces or performances from both of those major events? Alicia Keys was a particular favourite of mine at the Queen's Jubilee. been a fan of Alicia for years right and that was just a moment and I think one of the nicest moments I guess from that performance was she had some backing vocalists that she brought over with her and I think that part of that was for safety you know you don't know what you're going to get you're coming into the country you've never heard of Mark Delissa before it's just like you know is this choir going to be any good so she brought some some backing vocals and then after she heard us she said to her backing vocals yeah it's okay you guys can rest tonight which was really lovely that's really, really lovely. And what about the King's Coronation concert? What was the favourite piece or what did you feel really roused the audience that you were happy with? I was happy with a lot of that. I'm going to say the Alexis French piece. That was absolutely, for me, really stunning to arrange. What he played on it, I thought was brilliant. But it was the visuals as well that just really stole that for me. Our voices, the soloist and also the playing as well with the visuals. Unbelievable. And what was the atmosphere like at those events? And where are you, Mark? Can we see you? Because I don't remember seeing you. Were you tucked away at the side of the <laughs> stage somewhere? <laughs> yeah, I did a thing this year or in the King's Coronation that I've not done much of before. And that was to conduct off stage. And so what my singers heard was me in their ear. So I've got a monitor. So in the coronation, it was slightly different in that the spectacle is the artist and the choir around them. So there was really no space for me to wave my arms around. It's just like, who's this guy waving his arms around? Damn, that's annoying. In a way, but also I understand the visual of it. And for me, I, I would have been kind of out of place, I think. So I conducted off stage. So I'm watching the choir and the whole stage from a screen. The choir have got me in their ears. So I'm like, no, 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 remember this. Okay, we're going to this section, guys. All right, lift that brightness. All right, let's go with the energy. And I'm screaming into their ears all of the stuff that they need, prompting a couple of lyrics if, if I feel they need it. That was kind of new. I've done a little bit of it before, but that was kind of new, but good fun, actually. I bet. And do you get in any of these events, including Harry's wedding, do you get any feedback from the royal family? Do you get a little note or do you hear what they thought to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Harry and Meghan wrote a nice letter to the choir to say thank you. The king wrote a nice letter to 
the production. He didn't single out the choir, sadly. Uh, but he wrote to the production just to say it was brilliant. The music was uplifting and, and great. So. They're amazing events. What is it, Mark, about singing that is so good for all of us, whether we're tuneful or not? And I include myself in the not tuneful category. Why is it so good for our, our mental health, our well-being? And why does it just make us feel great? It's a release that is the essence of it. And that, and when we talk about release, I always say that as a newborn child, we enter this world and we make our first cry. We're not able to articulate word, but we make that first cry. And that is the thing that we know that we can absolutely do. It's not something we're taught, it's something that comes out of us. And it's something that we use for the rest of our life to express ourselves. So it's an expression. So, you know, sometimes you might be in a situation where you just want to scream. And that's an extreme expression. When you've got that scream out, it's like, I feel a little better now. Singing is exactly that but not as extreme. And so this is what I say, don't get to the point where you're screaming, sing often so that you are releasing all of that feeling, whatever it might be. It might be joy, it might be like, oh my God, I'm loving life at the moment. Or it might be, things are really tough for me. I just want to scream. If you're singing little and often, then you are releasing. Yeah, and I think that's that's what singing is all about. And do you think that anyone can sing or can be taught to sing if they don't start off very tuneful? I do believe that everyone can sing. Just depends on what you believe singing is. And I think that's the important thing. If you believe that Adele is the best singer in the world and you're never going to sound like Adele, then there's you may as well not even try. But if you change that mindset and say, look, Adele is Adele, I am Mark. Mark's sound is completely different from Adele's to Helen's to Carol's. It's completely different. And embrace that sound, then you sing. And nobody should really care about what you sound like. I don't think many people will criticise an accent. They'll say, oh, that's an accent. Where's that from? Yeah, they won't criticise it. So therefore, it doesn't stop you from speaking. But somebody somewhere made a lot of money from criticising singers who came out on stage to sing. And so now everybody feels now that they don't have a voice because actually I don't want to be criticised by my friends, my family. And also there's so much trauma that comes from somebody being criticised at a young age or maybe even into the adulthood. And that robs somebody of their voices as well. And I just want to say, look, there's so many things that you will go through in this life, but your voice is yours. It's yours. So never let anybody tell you you can't do it or it's not very good. It's yours. And that's the most important thing. And you've made people feel a lot more confident about that because you've done your virtual choirs, which I'm still yet to join and I have to <laughs> I have to join. You've also just had an event at the Royal Festival yeah. Hall, which yeah. unfortunately I missed. Now I really wanted to come to that because you've just invited people to a beautiful venue mm -hmm. to sing, haven't you? What's the idea behind that? <laughs> well, throughout lockdown I did hundreds of online virtual choir sessions and I just kept saying to people to lift their spirits really we're going to be back in a room one day guys and I'm going to get you in and we're going to all sing together and you people in Australia you can come over and the people from up north you can come down and America and wherever you're from we're going to be in the room so now that we're out of lockdown it was like okay cool let me see if I can get a space and it just so happened the festival hall were free and I was like 
great. So I just put it out to the world and <laughs> they came. And, and they what sang. are those events like? What's the atmosphere like when you look out and you see random people that you just sent this open invitation to? It blows my mind. It really does. Because it is that thing of, hi, do you want to come and do this? And then all of a sudden they turn up and they turned up in their hundreds. I mean, there was nearly a thousand people in the room and it is just a sea of people, but the energy is unbelievable. And one of the things that I'm keen to help people to understand is that when there's that many people in the room doing the same thing, there's an agreement. Everybody is in agreement. And that is something that I'm talking about more and more now that in life, we don't agree generally right on, on different things. You know, we have different opinions, blah, blah, blah. But in that room at that, for that day, all 1,000, nearly 1,000 people were in agreement. The songs we were singing, everybody was singing the same lyrics, maybe in harmony, but they were singing the same lyrics all the way through to song one to song four, they sang and they were in agreement that what they were doing was brilliant and it was something that they wanted to add their voices to. And so it is just a room of mass positivity. There were tears, there was laughter, there was dancing. There was everything that you could ever imagine would be happening in a room full of people. But like I said, they were all in agreement. I think there's no better example of the power of music that I've personally witnessed is spending a little bit of time with you and Vicky McClure mm -hmm. and the Dementia Choir, lucky enough to come up to the podcast and be part of rehearsals and then come to an event in Nottingham and hang off stage, absolutely singing my heart out. The Dementia Choir is really special to you, Mark. Yeah. What does that give you? How much joy does that give? And what difference do you see every time you're working with such wonderful, wonderful people? What difference do you see in them when they come and they sing with you? The difference is, it's so clear. They just enjoy being around each other firstly. And then secondly, how they come alive when they sing. talk to a lot of the carers and I say, look, how are they in the week? And some of them have had tough times or, you know, might have had a struggle throughout the week. But when they get into that session, they just come alive. And that is something that absolutely blows my mind every single time that I see it. Because here are these people who are living with dementia, who come there week in, week out, and they're smiling, they're singing, they're learning new songs, they're trying new things, they're doing all these crazy, wonderful warm-ups that I get them to do, but they're doing it. And they are living with dementia, but living well with dementia because they are singing. And that is why I will continue to do it for as long as they'll have me, truly, because it absolutely lifts me. Listen, I travel from London to Nottingham and Vicky wants me to move to Nottingham and I will do it at some point. I'm she sure wants everyone to move she to Nottingham. She wants everyone to move to Nottingham. Right? <laughs> so I'm up at 5am and I'm not back until five in the evening or for a, a one hour rehearsal. But it's more than that. It's the rehearsal. It's the getting to know different people. It's talking to carers. It's talking to members of the choir. It's a whole day thing. And that for me is a real joy, you know, and why I do it. 
It feels really like family and I think hats off to Vicky as well for her commitment mm. and love of the choir. And I am shocked to learn that you were not conducting the choir at Vicky's wedding the other week. Well, Vicky, what happened well, there, Basically, Mark? Vicky didn't consult me when she was thinking about dates for her wedding, basically. I mean, I think she should have called and said, Mark, I'm thinking about these dates for my wedding. Will you be around? Um, she didn't consult me. Anyway, so I had booked to be away in Jamaica for two weeks and sadly it landed exactly on, at the place where Vicky was getting married. Oh, it looked like you've missed out on a good party. I, li- I, li- I did. We I know did. as well that Vicky loves to sing and loves to dance <laughs> yes, and, and to has dance, a, yeah. an amazing energy. The other show that I really loved that you did, Meet the Street at Christmas, mm. that was a little time ago but it was mm-hmm. a five part series for BBC One where you were really showing how people in remote, isolated areas could come together through song and through music. Tell me a little bit about that because community is important to you, isn't it? Yeah, community is absolutely everything that I believe really that we should be doing. We should be galvanising our communities because we need people around. So we decided that we wanted to look and see how many people knew their neighbours. That was the first part of the documentary. And then if they didn't know their neighbours, would they be interested in coming together using song and using music to get to know their neighbours? Uh, and so we travelled the streets and the hills and the valleys of Wales to find people. And we did. We found so many people who just didn't know people locally, you know, next door neighbours. They just didn't know people who lived of a flat. They didn't really know. So we just brought these people together just to help them to understand that actually getting to know each other is so much better for all of us. Cliff stopped singing when he found his heart wasn't in it anymore. I'm hoping that today is the start of him finding his voice again and making new friends. Someone out there loves you. Loneliness is a big killer. That's one of the bits of research that we worked out on the show, that loneliness, I was like, people just being alone is a cause of premature death. And so we really tried to make people who are watching this show understand that do more, do more to get yourself in with your community. You know, sometimes we don't want to leave. I mean, I know sometimes throughout lockdown, of course, I didn't really want to leave my house. I couldn't leave my house. And it was nice just to be around family, but we need people, we need more people. And I think I did a lot of stuff on my street at the time to get to know members of the street throughout lockdown. And I made that thing. And now we have a WhatsApp group for every single person on the street, which is great. It's important. Community is one of the things that is important for us as human beings to have. That's super important. And also music breaks down barriers in the Mm. corporate world too. I know that's something you do go into big companies with perhaps up to 700 people and form a choir. It must be quite interesting for you to observe how people are in that very different arena. (laughs) Yeah, that's another fascinating area because these people are working, right? is there nine to five which is like what you're you're going to get me to sing but no I'm an engineer and I don't sing I haven't come to work to sing I've come to work to do my job and so one of the jobs that I did was working for an insurance company and they wanted me like you said to get 900 people majority men and I have to say that these people were working in their homes so they don't even go into an office they are more distant from any kind of real community when it comes to work 
So we had them in the room and we were like, okay, cool. This is what we're going to do. And you could see their faces. This is like the blood's just kind of draining away from their faces. And it's just like, I'm not there. And you could see a lot of them were just like, no, no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing this. And we got all of them singing. I would say probably 1%, 1%, no, maybe even, maybe even less than that. Less than one, less than 1% didn't sing, you know, but the majority of them gave it their all. And it was using music, stuff that they knew, songs that they didn't have to think about or learn. They could just have the lyrics and they know the tune to it. They could just sing along. And it was just so transformative. And at the end of the day, the performances were like off the scale. So what we did is we break them into different groups. Once we've broken them into groups, they can then produce a performance using a song. Then they come back together to compete with their different groups. And it was unbelievable. It's one of the best corporate jobs that I have done to date. Just seeing these people, a majority men, just come alive. Music is your life. It's your passion. You've also got a lovely family, Tracy, and three young children. If I got hold of the Mark Delissa relaxing playlist, what kind of music do you listen to when you just want to chill and you're not arranging or working on a piece for work? Ooh, that's a really good question. One that I don't know if I can answer properly because it's different songs and different styles of music on different days. For example, the carnival throughout the summer, you know, for the week prior and after, it was all soca music, reggae music. It was that kind of thing because that was the feeling of the moment. But a good friend of mine introduced me to some early music, you know, 16th century, 15th century stuff. Every so often, if I'm cooking, I'll put on some early music. Then there could be some gospel, usually on the weekend. It's a gospel thing in my house or contemporary Christian music. So that will happen. If you ask my children, if I'm on the way to school, they might get some hip hop just so that I can educate them on this is this is hip hop, guys. Or they might get some Miles Davis or they might get some, you know, Northern Soul. It could be anything. That sounds like my school runs when my kids were little. It could be Grateful Dead. It could be something in the charts. It could be yeah. the Stones. Just, or it could be something classical yeah. or something from a show or whatever. Are they showing signs of being musical or are you? They are. However, I don't make music a thing that they must do. You want them to go into IT, obviously. <laughs> really don't. Um, Do you make it just a pleasure for them? It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both my sons play drums and they're a lot better than me. I mean, I played drums when I was growing up, but they're a lot better than me. My daughter plays guitar and one of my other sons is starting to show signs of the piano, but I just want them to kind of do it and make music how they feel. Whereas when I was growing up, I was told to do it. So I never tell them if I, you know, I might be playing piano at home and they might come and say, oh, dad, what are you doing? I was like, oh, just, you know, this, that. I'll come off the piano, I'll hear them kind of trying to do it. And I'll just kind of shout back, yeah, 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 that's really great. Try the, go up a semitone and see how that feels. I bet it's a lovely musical household. (laughs) It it is. And then I am asking guests this season, Mark, what is the biggest risk you've ever taken? Tough question. It is. I think I've touched on it already, actually. But the biggest risk was, and I say this with all respect, really, and I am going to use this phrase. It's, a, it's yeah, I'm going to use this. It was, I guess, turning my back on what my parents wanted without any guarantee that it was going to succeed. Because I guess I just didn't know, were they right? Is that what I should be doing? Or was I a failure because I couldn't do what they wanted me to do? And so actually saying, no, mum and dad, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to follow my dream. 
and follow what is in my heart and what I believe my purpose to be. That was the biggest risk because they were such a big part of my life and I didn't want to let them down and I didn't want to fail. I'd failed many times, but I'd failed doing what they wanted me to do. So that was the biggest risk. But looking back now, I wouldn't change it. I would do it the same time and time again. You followed your dream and, you know, you... You, the things you've done have been extraordinary. It, it just begs the question to end on what's next? What's coming up for you, Mark? What's blowing in the wind? Well, we're trying to do, no, we're not trying. We are going to do some research into exactly what singing does for us, quantifiable research. So we're going to track metrics, put people in situation and track the metrics about how they feel while singing the highs, the lows, and exactly what singing does, which hasn't, from what I can see, hasn't been done yet. We can talk about anecdotally what, what we feel like. You know, we feel happy. Oh man, I sang, it was great. But actually what is really happening inside the body? And you know? in the brain, when you and look at the brain, the brain too. Absolutely. So that's what we're looking to do. I mean, that's a big thing for me. That's amazing. And also maybe, who knows, your IT skills might come in handy <laughs> oh, when you're God. recording. <laughs> I wouldn't call them skills, Helen. I wouldn't call them skills. <laughs> Mark, thank you for inviting me to your studio. It's a real pleasure to come and spend some proper time with mm. you rather than when I'm running around with the choir and get a quick hello because you're busy and I'm doing whatever I'm there for. And to hear the behind the scenes of some of the amazing projects that you've done, but also the journey that I wasn't really expecting, if I'm honest. Mm. I wasn't expecting that and wow. it's been a, a real pleasure so thank you it's my pleasure thank you you've been listening to musical director arranger and vocal coach mark delissa don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search the convex conversation on spotify stitcher apple and google podcasts or wherever you listen to yours i've read that so quickly it sounds like an advert really i'll be back next week with another inspirational guest so join me then bye